I just got to check if anybody's around the corner here. No, hey, ladies. I just like to be able to see you, that's all. Nobody's around there, are they? Good. All right, it's just a fundamental principle of uh, teaching. Don't let anyone get behind you. You know that. And uh, I'll be watching you. Um, uh, Humility uh, means that I cannot tell you the details of the golf this afternoon. Um, I'd like to thank a guy called Ben Goretti for his clubs. They work really good. Um, and I'd like to thank you again for the privilege of uh, being able to come and open the Bible with you. Uh, that is our purpose. That's why it's called the Bible uh, Week or Bible Conference. And I'd like for you to um, turn with me tonight to 1 Corinthians, if you would. I said this morning that the link between each of the three uh, messages that I'm to bring is essentially a call to practical Christian godliness. And this morning, as we looked in Psalm 1, we sought to lay some of the groundwork for that. And tonight, what we're going to do is to pay particular attention to just uh, three verses from 1 Corinthians 6. Let me just try and set a context here before I read these three verses. Uh, First of all, you know that uh, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was um, dramatic. It was apparently effective in many, many ways, and yet it had some significant troubles within it. And uh, Paul, in addressing them, is very straightforward. For example, in verse 18 of chapter 4, he points out to those to whom he writes, he says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. And they were beginning to talk and uh, be uh, somewhat boastful in their expressions. And so he has to point out to them in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. He goes into chapter 5, And you can hardly believe your ears when you read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. And he then goes on to outline some of the horrendous chaos that is involved within the church. He then points out to them that if there are people who are within the framework of the church who are making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and yet are not living out that life, they ought to be very straightforward in the way they handle them. And that's why in verse 9 of chapter 5 he says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, because if I told you that, then you wouldn't even be able to uh, exist in the world at all because the world is full of those kind of people. His great concern is not the problem in Sunset Boulevard. His great concern is the problem within the Corinthian church. He knew then the corruption of that city, and he understood that unregenerate men and women will conduct their affairs in that way, but the people in Corinth had begun to fall into believing that it was possible for them somehow 
while professing a vibrant testimony of faith in Jesus Christ to have a lifestyle that ran absolutely counter to the profession that they were making. And, and in relation to this, there were lawsuits among the brethren, there was sexual immorality, there was drunkenness, it was total chaos. And so in verse 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 6, this is what he says, and this is where we're going to be tonight. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are not easy verses to tackle. They wouldn't be easy at 9 o'clock in the morning after a good night's sleep. They're certainly not particularly easy at quarter to eight at night after many of us have been up a long time. Therefore, as both listeners and maybe especially listeners and speaker, uh, we need to ask for the Spirit of God to help us. And I also need to ask for a watch. Um, so that I can uh, keep track of uh, where I am. Uh, and you should be most glad that I'm asking for this watch. It's a big watch. And just like your big golf score. Thank you. pray. <laughs> our God and our Father, the world is going up and down these freeways as we gather in this gymnasium. Its whole perspective on life is such that to think of a group of people such as ourselves convened for the express purpose of reading some of the words of this ancient book and uh, actually seeking you that you would bring uh, the truth and conviction of them to bear upon our lives, the world regards as absolute foolishness. Uh, we pray that you will remind us again tonight that you have made the apparent wisdom of the world folly and that what is foolishness in their eyes is actually your power and we pray that you will give to us the ability to speak and to listen in such a way that we won't simply have fulfilled our obligations by either speaking or by listening, but that somehow in that mysterious way that only the Spirit of God can accomplish, we will know ourselves to have been in the presence of God and have heard from the Word of God so that we might better understand what it means to be the children of God. This is our earnest cry to you, and we seek your face in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 19th of November, 1978, an event occurred in, in our lives which changed my wife and I's lives for, forever and for good. That was the birth of our first child. No matter what anybody says about all the expectation that is wrapped up in that, until you have gone through that experience, you can never fully prepare for it. And it really messes you up 
significantly. Uh, up until that time, if you want to go out for pizza, uh, you can go out for pizza. And even if you want to go out for pizza at 2 o'clock in the morning, if you can find the place open. Uh, your lives are uh, run on a certain line. But as a result of the gift of that new life, it has a radical and immediate impact on your lifestyle. Indeed, it is impossible to be presented with the new life without an accompanying new lifestyle. One of the greatest lies of the evil one, which has been true from the very beginning, is that it is possible to embrace in Jesus a new life and to not actually have an accompanying new lifestyle. And that was essentially the problem that had crept into the Corinthian church. Many of these people, while expressing a tremendous interest in the things of Jesus, while being able to manifest exciting and dramatic gifts, were living in a way that was absolutely contrary to all that God had planned and purposed for them. And in the course of writing this letter, Paul, as I've suggested to you, and trying to sketch background in a little bit, Paul has to bring them up short and say to them, listen, I want you to understand that if you profess to have a new life, then by the Spirit of God, there must be an accompanying new lifestyle. Not, as we said this morning, as a result of simply blood, sweat, and tears, but as a result of the energizing work of the Spirit of God making us new, transforming us from the inside out. And nowhere does this become more apparent and more pressing than in these three verses, which are really tremendously challenging. What had happened to the Corinthians was that they had lost sight of some of the essential building blocks of their own Christian experience. They had grown broad-minded and they were proud of it. And they needed to be directed. They had become the kind of individuals who had developed their own little gurus and they were disagreeing with one another on the strength of who their particular hero was. And what they needed to discover was what it meant to resubmit their lives to Jesus Christ, to be brought afresh to the place of consecration so that they might in turn be useful to the Master. Now, in tracing a line through these three verses, I, I want to uh, give you four points if I can. If I can't, then I won't, and I'll stop when I'm finished. And uh, then we'll do the rest tomorrow, and we won't do what I think I'm going to do tomorrow. When do we finish? Then we definitely will do two tomorrow. All right? It's 8 o'clock right now. 8.40, any advance on 8.40? All right. Okay. Do I hear nine? All right. Here's the four points. I'll give you the four points so you know where we're going. Christopher Columbus set out. He didn't know where he was going. He got here. He didn't know where he was. He went back and he didn't know where he'd been. Such is the average sermon. So, just so you know that I know where I'm going, even in case we get lost along the way. There are four points. Here they are. Number one, the question to be addressed. Number two, the deception to be avoided. Number three, the realization to be acknowledged. And number four, the transformation to be affirmed. Don't worry about it. I'll give you them all again. Number one, 
the question to be addressed. Here it is, one sentence at the beginning of verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or, as J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, have you forgotten that the kingdom of God will never belong to the wicked? I said this morning that if we live like the wicked, it is because we are wicked. And without holiness, says the writer to the Hebrews, no man or woman will see the Lord. Not a holiness of self-effort, not some kind of works righteousness endeavor to make ourselves acceptable to God, but the Spirit of God works it in and we work it out. And without holiness, none of us will ever be in heaven. And so he has to remind them of this. And the reason he has to remind them of this is because their church is such an unholy disaster. Their lives are marked by shame. They're singing all the right songs. They're attending all the right meetings. They're sending their children to all the right schools. And yet they have forgotten a fundamental principle. Namely, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you don't need me to give you a talk tonight on the kingdom of God. We know that the kingdom of God is, amongst other things, the rule and the essential realm in which Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Luke tells us in chapter 4 and 43 that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. In John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that unless a man was born again, he could neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. Nothing identifies believers more in all the world than that they have been made members of the sphere in which Jesus is king. We are, if you like, as Christian believers, kids of the kingdom. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm writing to you to urge you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. On all the things that have happened to us simultaneously in embracing Christ, one of them is that we have been made members of the kingdom. We are the kids of the kingdom. And therefore, we are to manifest in our lives the kingly reign of Christ through all of our lives. He's going to say later on in chapter 6, to which we'll never get, don't you know that you were bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. All that you are, your tongue, your ears, your eyes, your human sexuality... All of it is to manifest the fact that you live under the king's rule. Now, he has to drive this home to them because they had forgotten it. It's not simply a rhetorical question. He says, don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? It has been promised to those who are the kids of the kingdom. The unrighteous will not go to heaven. The unrighteous exclude themselves from God's kingdom by their chosen behavior. God's kingdom reflects God's character. It reflects God's standards. And those who insist on living by their own standards will never live within the framework of the kingdom. Now think this out tonight, young people. Paul is not here talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness. Because we know that all of us still live with the residual effects of indwelling sin. Colossians 3 makes that clear. 
One day we'll be free from sin's presence. We have been freed from sin's penalty. And tonight we are presently being freed from sin's continual downward drag on our lives. He's not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness. He is talking about a complete way of life pursued persistently by those who by their very lifestyles show themselves to be illegal aliens. Now listen carefully to me, will you young folks? I don't want to be uh, dramatic in any way, but I want to tell you this. I studied in an institution like this, and I know how you get in an institution like this. And I spent three years of my life in a place like this. And in those three years, it became apparent that there were people in there who signed the right forms, said the right things, and they were not kids of the kingdom. They weren't believers. So I'm not going to start from the assumption tonight that this somehow is an irrelevant passage of Scripture. Because there may be some of you who are here, and you're absolutely trapped You're trapped because by your profession with your lips, you have led people to believe that you're one of the kids of the kingdom. But your lifestyle, your internal motivations, your mind, your heart, your propensities, your longings, your dreams, your reactions are godless. And the wicked will never enter into God's kingdom. For he is altogether righteous He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. The narrow way was never hit upon by chance, neither did a heedless man ever live a holy life. And so tonight, listen carefully, because this runs counter to the perspective that is present in our world. The significance of the conviction about those who will and will not inherit the kingdom effectively revolves around our belief about the judgment of God. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 25 and listen to the words of Jesus. This is Jesus himself speaking. Matthew 25 and verse 34. If you start at 32, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. That's an absolute certainty. That will happen. And something else that's going to happen, all the nations will be gathered before him. And what's he going to do? He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And to those on his left, verse 41, he will say, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the reason he gives is because their lifestyle did not match their profession of life. Do you not know, it's a fundamental question, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, loved ones, think about it tonight. When the church, and I mean the church with a big C, grows soft on what the Bible emphasizes concerning the nature of judgment, as we're reading it here, then it loses two things. It loses any sense of discipline within its ranks, and it loses any sense of vibrancy in evangelism. 
And if you think about what is so promulgated from the church in the Western world today, so little of it has to do with purity within the church and with zeal for people to come to know Jesus outside the church. It has to do with all kinds of natural phenomenon and holistic cures for man and emphases on political agendas and so many things. And you watch these videos that come from great missionary conventions in our country and you say to yourself, I wonder why it is that the emphasis seems to have drifted away from the priorities of the Bible, namely purity within the church and a passion for others to come to know Jesus. I'll tell you what it is. They've asked the question, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And they've answered, no, I don't know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. I have a sneaking suspicion that they might. I'm not sure how they will, but I think they might. Paul says, no, they absolutely will not. Well, then somebody's sitting listening to Paul, and he says, I've got a question for you. Don't you know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And somebody says, well, what do you mean wicked? Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Because not only is there a question to be addressed, but here we are at our second point, which is pretty good because I've only been going ten minutes, but there is also a deception to be avoided. The deception to be avoided. Look at it. Where do you get these points from? Somebody asked me. How do you prepare your sermons? Well, there's a question mark after the first sentence in verse 9, isn't there? Right? That's how I got the first point. The question to be addressed. Now, what is the next thing that's mentioned? Do not be deceived. What is that? That is deception. What are we not to do with deception? We are not to be deceived. Therefore, there is a deception to be avoided. It's really pretty simple. As long as you've got a Bible, anybody can preach. It's just there. Just say what it says. All right? Don't be under any illusion, says Paul. Don't walk through the minefield of false teaching and false behavior. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't true. Now you have to back up here for a moment or two and remember what Corinth was like. You remember that Corinth was set on a narrow neck of land, an isthmus. Difficult to say that, isn't it? Isthmus. I-S-T-H-M-U-S, which is a narrow neck of land. Why anybody called it an isthmus, I will never know. I mean, why not just call it a narrow neck of land? That's easy to say. I don't even know why I mentioned it. But anyway, that's where it was. It was a metropolitan center because people used to uh, bring their boats up from this side, from the east, and, there, and then they had little trolleys that they dragged them across the I-word, narrow neck of land, over to the other side. And it was just a major thoroughfare for all kinds of... Uh, uh, commercial success and trading. It was a cosmopolitan environment. It was a hodgepodge of races, of creeds, of languages. But as, as a culture, as with many ports, it was rootless and it was rough. The city was dominated by a hill called the Acrocorinth, some 2,000 feet up there. It presented to the city not simply a physical presence, but also a moral presence, actually an immoral presence. Because up on the Acrocorinth was the temple of Aphrodite, or Venus. Not in blue jeans, just Venus. The temple of Venus. She was the goddess of love. Actually, that should read, she was the goddess of lust. And from the Acrocorinth and the temple of Aphrodite, a thousand temple priestesses 
descended in the evenings to roam the streets at sacred courtesans. Well, you say, what possible interest could that be to the church of Jesus Christ? A tremendous amount of interest. Because he says to them later on, don't you know that when you join yourself to a prostitute? He's not talking theory here. He's talking actual. He says, don't be deceived into believing that you can have a lifestyle which is totally godless, totally unholy, totally divorced from the things of Christ, and yet somehow or another carry around in your pocket a card which says, for whatever reason, by the way, I'm going to heaven. He says, don't be deceived by that kind of stuff. The place was so bad that it created its own verb, Corinthiazomai, which meant to practice immorality. The word Corinth became synonymous with immorality. It was densely populated, it was prosperous, it was sex-crazed. So 2,000 years later is no different from Los Angeles. So what do you do when you come on a city that is densely populated, phenomenally prosperous, and sex-crazed? Do you gather the troops and march up the Acro-Corinth with a lot of signs? saying, stop your nonsense up here? Do you walk around in the city and shout at the people, you bunch of sinful scum? Wouldn't you like to come to our church? (laughs) What do you do? What do you do in Los Angeles? How in the wide world do we reach cosmopolitan America? That's the fundamental question. Because I live in a densely populated relatively prosperous, sex-crazed city. I need to know what to do. There's no question what you do. When Paul arrived, you need to read this in Acts chapter 18, as soon as he got some money sent to him, because he was making his tents and preaching in the afternoons, as soon as somebody jammed in a few gifts, it says, Luke records, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he did. That's what he did then, and that's what needs to be done now. That is exactly what is not being done now. Preaching is in the shadows. The church does not believe in it. Seminaries, by and large, don't even produce preachers. They produce all manner of things. Why do they produce all these other things? Are they all irrelevant and unnecessary? No, absolutely not. But why don't they produce preachers? Because they don't believe that preaching does anything. They believe that it is a talk by a theologically trained individual who happened to bump up against a box, and when he bangs up against the box, he just talks. And they give marks out of ten. Good one, funny one, not so funny one. Convicted me, hate his guts, write him a note, da-da-da-da-da. So Paul says to these people, I don't want you to be deceived. And indeed, his approach to it was not to enact legislation, but was to begin proclamation. You read the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, go into chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you find that he deliberately rejected the eloquent rhetoric of the philosophers. The very thing that the people wanted, he didn't give them. They liked miraculous signs, and they liked wisdom. He said, guess what? I ain't going to give you wisdom, and you're not getting any miraculous signs from me. 
Well, what are we going to get, Paul? This is what you're going to get. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, you don't mean to tell me, Paul, that the death of a Galilean carpenter, Jesus Christ, is the pivotal event of human history. You're not going to tell me that somewhere on a hill outside of the city walls of Jerusalem is the answer to the deepest problems of humanity. Paul says, that's exactly what I'm going to tell you. And when the power of Jesus Christ invades a life and changes a life, it roots out the deception that believes that I can live any jolly way I please while at the same time holding on to a profession of faith. You see, Paul was absolutely clear about this, and the reason he was so central in it was because he says, I do not want your faith to stand or rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. See, if your faith tonight is held up by some kind of apologetic uh, fabric, in other words, you read Josh McDowell's Evidence that Demands a Verdict, you learned all the arguments off by heart, and so now you think you're set for the, for the rest. If that's what your faith rests on, you're in deep trouble. Because I can guarantee you there are enough answers to those apologetic questions, enough to knock your socks off and freak you out and mess you up and make you toss and turn on your bed. And you will always be susceptible to the next bright guy who comes along with a fancier argument. But if your faith tonight rests on the power of God, if your faith tonight rests on the fact that you know two things, that you're a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior, you've got a great foundation to build on. You've got a great message to proclaim. And you don't need to be deceived into believing that somehow or another we have to limp through our lives, chained to all the sins of our past, and stuck with committed agendas. I look at you young men tonight. The potential in a room like this is absolutely phenomenal. Well, you say, what are, are you looking at the girls? Yeah, I'll come to you in a minute, but right now I'm looking at the men. And I want to talk about men. The girls are usually far better than the guys in this in any case. Some of you guys need to take a tumble to yourselves. You need to stand and look in the mirror and in the mirror of God's Word. I wouldn't marry my daughter to some of you for all the tea in China. We say, well, I never met your daughter and I don't care. Well, that's fine. It's just an illustration. Don't get upset. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you this, that some of you are playing the game. You can play it here as good as anywhere. The average Bible college student amounts to very little for Jesus Christ in the long run. And it isn't because of the absence of the information they've received. It's not because of the deficiency of the environment in which they've lived. It's because somehow or another they have chosen to believe the deception that they can live with a significant gap between the verbal profession and the actual lifestyle. It's the same garbage that the world lives with. In the music awards the other night, that guy, uh, Snoop Dogg, do da do whoever he is, who's, who's, uh, who's up for murder... Did you, did, you read, did you read a quote in the USA Today? Okay, the guy is charged with murder. They bring him on the national TV and they parade him there like a, some kind of talking whatever. And if someone interviewed him afterwards because there was a big hoopla about whether he should be there and he said, listen, my private life is my private life, my public life is my public life. No, I'm sorry, Mr. Doggy Doo Doo, whatever you are. No, it's not. 
It is absolutely not. Oh, you got the point. I just keep moving now. All right. About the girls, great potential with the girls. I'll come to you later on. All right. Now, what he does then, because the deception to be avoided is believing that all of this garbage that he's about to go through can be tolerated under the banner of Christian profession. Now, what I'm trying to tell you about, young people, tonight is practical Christian godliness. I'm not trying to tell you about something that I have absolutely mastered. I'm trying to remember what it was like to be 18, 19, 20, 21, and I don't think I've completely forgotten. And I now know what it's like to be 39, 40, 41, and soon to be 42. And it's really tough to live for Jesus Christ in this world. The whole world is bombarded against us, comes through our eyes, comes through our ears, comes at us hammer and tongs to squeeze us into its mold, to erode our convictions, to deceive us if it can. And that's why we have to be alert, because the devil is a roaring lion, seeking those he can devour. We have to have our eyes and our ears open. We have to be true to the Scriptures. Now, the sorry list which he then gives is no different from the kind of list that is relevant tonight in Los Angeles. The reason being that human nature has not changed. Now, I don't want to spend a long time on this list, but I want you to notice, he says... Do not be deceived. Number one, fornicators or sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who break the bounds of God's plan for sexual fulfillment as an ongoing, convinced, committed way of life which is exalted, portrayed, and held out in our culture will not inherit the kingdom of God. Secondly, idolaters who make little objects so that they might worship God with a small g and thereby come to worship the symbol and to reject the reality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers who destroy God-ordained relationships between husbands and wives and mums and dads as that is their practice, committed lifestyle are in the same boat. Thieves, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It was a curse of the ancient world, stealing things. But we made it into a little drama, a kind of funny little drama in Oliver Twist. Remember Fagin? Do you remember Fagin? Two of you remember Fagin. Very good. But in the award-winning Fagin, with uh, Jaron Moody, who won an Oscar for Fagin, you may remember if you've seen the video, and you could always rent it, that... Uh, that he uh, brings uh, uh, little Oliver up to his, his, his cave there, remember, where he's got all the little thieves, and then, he, and then he sings the little song to him, remember? Take a tip from Bill Sykes. He can nick what he likes. But I recall he started small. you got to pick a pocket or two, boys. you got to pick a pocket or two. Da, 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 da. Gotta pick a pocket on the bars. Okay. Anyway, we're with our kids. I'm saying to my kids, wouldn't you like to sit, have a little popcorn, and we'll watch Oliver Twist? What a lovely little Oliver Twist. Isn't this good? And they're all going, hey, you gotta pick a pocket or two boys. You gotta pick a pocket. So I'm not sure this is the message I was trying to send here. Okay. Now, what happened was people were always going to public baths and going to gymnasiums, and they kept getting ripped off. And some of the people in Corinth were doing that. They were in the church. They were coming to the communion service. And their pockets are full of stuff. Because they just came from the gym. 
And they've been nicking stuff. They've got a bunch of stuff. And then they justify it. I put a little bit in the offering. You ever played that game? Now incidentally, just in passing, think about this. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, and stealing. What are these now in the late 20th century? I'll tell you what they are. They're conditions. They're conditions. They're not sins. You don't need forgiveness for this. You need to get your head examined. The Bible says you don't need your head examined. You need your life transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. Do not be deceived. Greedy people will not inherit the kingdom of God. How would you get on at dinner tonight? The spirit that's always reaching for more, grabbing for that, to which it has no right, if you like, aggressive getting. Drunks. That's what it says. Drunks will not enter the kingdom of God. Uncontrolled drinking. Not uncontrollable drinking. Uncontrolled drinking. Slanderers. People who use their tongues to destroy people. Do you know how much slander goes on in the average church? Maybe it happens in colleges too. Do you know how much garbage is passed down the line under the disguise of a prayer chain? Well, I'm just telling you this. Just thought I'd phone you and let you know. I'm only telling you this because it's true. I know a lot of things that are true that I'm never going to tell you. The fact that it's true doesn't need to be said, right? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? And half the things we say in a day don't meet the kind and necessary criteria whether they're true or not. Slanderers won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now you say, hey Al, you skipped a couple there because I've got my Bible open and you jumped over male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. I did so deliberately because I want to say something to you tonight. Not because this sin is more punishable than the other kinds of sin, but because of the unique situation in which we now find ourselves as a society. You can't go in a restaurant. You can't go in Gap. And I don't want to get involved in slander, but I, I, my guess is that Gap has a policy on this from the absolute top down. I don't know. Gap started in San Francisco, but I have never, I have never encountered so many homosexuals in any retail clothing store as in Gap. My son, who is 15 years old, was propositioned in Gap by one of the men working there. A young man in our church who has just gone to Trinity Seminary began working in another store adjacent to it in the mall. His first night there, he was encountered by a guy who had worked there for some months, came up to him and said, I haven't had a serious relationship for some time. You look like the kind of guy that I would like to spend time with. What do you say? Now, what does the Bible say to this? The Bible says, forget the nonsense about it being an alternative lifestyle. Forget the garbage about chromosomes. And listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, sin. Not worse sin, but sin. God made male, he made female, Genesis 1.27. He never planned for the roles to be blurred. He never planned for the roles to be exchanged. 
And the sin of homosexuality by this time had spread like a cancer through the Greek world. It had invaded Rome. Do you know that of the first 15 Roman emperors, 14 of them were homosexual? Nero was emperor at the time that Paul was writing to Corinth. Nero took a young boy called Sporus, Sporus, married him in an official public ceremony, in a great splendid cavalcade, he then took him back to his palace and lived with him as his wife. And the corruption of Greek and Roman civilization is directly related to the fundamental demise of, human, of humanity when men cease to be men and women fail to be women. Now, loved ones, I want to tell you this, and I want you not to be deceived. And some of you may even be in the middle of this, and that's why I'm laboring to say to you, sin is sin is sin. But this is an amazing problem that you will live with if Christ does not return. There is a more than even chance that without a revival in this country, the watershed in relationship to the church in the next decade is going to be directly related to sexuality and to the preparedness of people to say, this is out, and it's out because God says it is out. And tonight, denominations and churches are condoning homosexual ministers, condoning their marriages, and in the whole process of it all, there is the destruction of family life. I don't want to hear the nonsense about family values from people who want to speak family value on the one hand and the exaltation of the homosexual agenda on the other hand. You cannot have family values and homosexual lifestyles endorsed on the same platform. The only value that exists for families is one mom, one dad, living in purity before marriage, in monogamy within marriage, and bringing their children up where boys are boys, girls are girls, dolls are for the girls, stuff is for the boys, <laughs> and the girls don't play soccer. <laughs> well, let's just finish up that point. <laughs> Okay, let me just take you to the next two, and I'll just blitz through this. The realization to be acknowledged, because this is great. I mean, this is so good, I'm going to take my jacket off. In fact, I'm going to take this ridiculous-looking thing off as well. Um, look at the next verse. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. Phillips paraphrases it. There was a time when some of you were just like that. This is the great, fantastic thing about Jesus and what he does. The proof of Christianity lies in its power to transform lives. can take people who are lost to shame, people who are destroyed, people who are so messed up, people who tonight are walking the streets of Los Angeles and can radically change them. 
There is not a government policy will be able to bring about this change. All of this jazz about guns and stopping all these boys. There was a 15-year-old boy got off a school bus last week in Cleveland, walked off the school bus, three kids jumped on him, stabbed him through his heart, and kicked him into a bloody mass and ran away. A 15-year-old kid. And the answer is, you know, I think if we could perhaps just help these people and uh, uh, give them a little more, uh, you know, give them some Coca-Cola and a sandwich and, and bring them in and, and play a little music for them. And, and, and what a lot of junk, what a lot of stupidity. You see, social activism can do all that on the outside, but it can't change a man from the inside. Loved ones, do you know that the only hope for America is in Jesus Christ? Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that the hope for your unsaved mom and dad is in Jesus? Uh, can some of you stand up and testify to the fact that you did have a trouble with booze? That you were a thief? That you have had an immoral past? But you're not chained to it. You're not the children of a something-something. You're not a recovering this or recovering that. You're a brand new person because of Jesus. And such were some of you. So we can go to the Zacchaeuses, we can go to the women at the well, and we can say, we have living water, if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. You'll never have to fill your life with sexual longings, because Jesus will take that from you. We don't say that. The reason we don't say it is because we don't believe it. People don't preach it because they don't see it. And it's in your hands in a coming generation that you need to come to these deep convictions. Otherwise... The demise of the church in the United States is an absolute certainty, save an influx of the Spirit of God. Because the generation past that is engaged in all this social activism and in all this psychology and in all this, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, they still have some biblical convictions. They know something about the Bible. But the generation that's growing up now, all they see is, you're supposed to march on Washington. You're supposed to keep 1-800 numbers next to your bed. You're supposed to make sure that you uh, elect the right kind of governors. And you're supposed to make sure that you're a good democratic member of the, of the community. So the devil's got us absolutely suckered. Because at the same time that people believe all that, they don't believe that to preach the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of men and women really matters a hill of beans at all. They think that what Christianity is about is how to be a good dad. So we have conferences in Colorado on how to be a good dad. The Mormons know how to be good dads. The Mormons are actually better at being good dads on many occasions. The Mormons know how to change their external lifestyle. That's why when you get Christianity at the level of those external things, it's only a kick of the pants off amalgamations with those people because they all share the same thing. Judeo-Christian values. Where in the world did Judeo-Christian values come from? Did Jesus Christ say, go into all the world and proclaim Judeo-Christian values? No, he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel that my death, my blood, shaves people from sin. That's it, and that's all of it. That's blooming foolish. My next door neighbor doesn't want to hear that. He's a Jew. I don't have any other message. I've got nothing else I can say to him. Save that by the atoning death of Christ, those of us whose lives were dead in trespasses and sins are made absolutely new by the power of the Spirit of God. We have a new life and we have a new lifestyle. You take hymnody at the moment, no reflection on what we were singing here today, but the average stuff we're singing today is totally me-oriented. 
Oh, I'm a fine little boy, and Jesus is nice to me. Oh, 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 oh. Sing it 50 times. It's like a stinking mantra. It drives you nuts. You might as well be singing something else. Nobody's writing decent hymns that have got any soteriology in them at all. Listen to this. Now, I'm not claiming that the hymns in the past were the great hymns. or Don't get me into that stuff. I mean... I like modern stuff as well, some of it. But, listen to this. This is a hymn from the past. I need thee, precious Jesus. Why? Because I am feeling sad. <laughs> because I don't know what to do with my life. Because I need purpose. Because I haven't scored a touchdown in the last seven games. No. I need thee, precious Jesus, for I am full of sin. My soul is dark and guilty. My heart is dead within. I need the cleansing fountain where I can always flee. The blood of Christ most precious, the sinner's perfect plea. Or how about this one? Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my soul's sickness, into thy health. Out of my want, and into thy wealth. Out of my sin and into thyself. Not out of my sin and into myself. Jesus, I come to thee. Now, the reason that our churches are populated with half-baked Christians is because they have been the recipients of half-baked gospel messages. So they have never come to see themselves as sinners in the hands of an almighty God. They figured that if someone said you can have more purpose, you can have more joy, you can have more peace. Jesus Christ is the real thing. Aha! You got the right one, baby. Aha! I said, that's good. So I can just I can just go the same places I always went. I can be the same person I always was. I just have I have Jesus now. I keep him. I have a CD player in my trunk, and I have Jesus in my trunk. I press a button here, and this sings. I press a button there, and he sings. No, 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 no. Jesus drives the car. You sit beside him. He drives, and the Corinthians were grabbing the steering wheel. They were wrecking their lives. They were destroying the church. And Paul says to them, listen, there's a question that needs to be addressed. Do you not know that the wicked will never inherit the kingdom of God? There's a deception that needs to be avoided. That you can live this way and still profess genuine faith in Christ. There is a realization that needs to be acknowledged. And that is that Jesus is the answer to the world today. And that the response to Greek wisdom is not in clever arguments, but it's in changed lives. And finally, there is a transformation to be affirmed. A transformation to be affirmed. And with this, I will stop, I promise you.
a transformation, a metamorphosis. That is what some of you were. See, those of us who are brought up in Christian homes, incidentally, and our testimonies go like this. My mom was really faithful to me, always tucked me into my bed, told me about Jesus, and I professed faith as a small boy, and you think your testimony is no good, and you, and you come up with this thing, you want to go and say, well, I was a hell's angel, and I used to have this, and I had an earring through my uh, whatever, and, uh, and you think, no, let, let me tell you something, for those of you who are troubled by that, I want to tell you this. Murray McShane died at the age of 29. He said, I know that the seeds of every sin known to man dwell within my heart. It is no greater transformation, it is no greater salvation to be saved out of the pigsty than to be kept from the pigsty. You don't have to go out and experiment with all this garbage. You don't have to get a history for yourself. And if God has given you a godly granny and a godly mom and you've professed faith in Jesus Christ and it says in here, and that is what some of you were, and you say to yourself, well, that wasn't what I was because I never did any of these things. The only reason you didn't do any of those things is because the grace of God arrested you in your life before you ever got the chance. And you know because you've seen, you've seen yourself in the mirror of God's word, you know that even now tonight, were it not for his power to keep your life, you'd still go out and do those things. And the very fact you're here, the very fact you're sticking with it, is an indication of His transforming power. How has He transformed us? He has washed us. Washed us. Tremendous picture. You're filthy, and now you're clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. What is performed at Calvary is pictured in our baptism. And presumably in an illusion like this, he's thinking there of the whole uh, indication that was expressed in baptism. Not that the cleansing takes place in the baptismal waters, but the baptismal waters portray what his blood has performed. You were washed. You were sanctified. What does that mean? It means set apart for the master's use. When the queen visits anywhere, she has this little bunch of guys that run around in front of her. When she came to Los was it in Los Angeles the lady hugged her? I can't remember, somewhere in America, but you don't hug my queen, okay? Leave her alone. She doesn't like being hugged. And uh and somebody hugged her. So that's that's taboo. But anyway, before she comes it says, you know, uh she will be in Placerita Canyon on Thursday afternoon. Right. Before she shows up in Placerita Canyon, you've never seen anything like it in your life. All these trucks come up, everything comes up. The little guys, they're shining everything, cleaning everything, fixing the floods, moving the mud, shining up everything, painting the people's front doors and everything else. Go, and if she visits a lady's house, they go in, they get the, 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 the vacuum cleaner and that, you know, that thing that washes your carpets, which never really washes them, is a tremendous waste of money. And they, they do all that kind of stuff. You can't walk on them for a day and a half and it's never any different. Then about 20 minutes, it's just as bad as it was. But, and, and, and they go through and they, and they do all that stuff. Why? Because the queen's coming. The queen's coming. Clean it up. The queen's coming. That's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. To progressively clean us up. To go into the nooks and the crannies. Did you ever get your car detailed? It's amazing what people can do with those little uh, things that you're supposed to stick in your ear, isn't it? Because you can't get that stuff out of your car. Your fingernail won't do it. You try to get it, it's in, in bits of peanut and everything. You try and get it out, you can't do it. Then you give it to those detail guys, it comes back, it's gone. How did you do that? They have these implements of destruction, they can do all these things. Why? They want to detail it so when you get it back, it's better than it was before. And the Spirit of God works, He details us. 
details us. Don't, don't choose your friends in here amongst people who are easy to be bad with. Don't hang around with guys in whose company it's easy to use filthy language. Don't go for the lowest common denominator. Go for the top. You were like that. You're washed. You're being sanctified. You were justified. Declared righteous in God's sight. Tremendous. You got an A-plus in the class and you never even took the course. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what happened to the dying thief? The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. How did the dying thief go to heaven? He went to heaven justified. Declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of what Jesus was achieving there on the cross. Let me finish with this comment. You say to me, you know, Al, you're getting a little upset here. You take your jacket off, you take your jersey off, you're throwing stuff on the floor and... and uh, you know, what's the problem then? It's just this. That I have just a burning passion in my heart for young people like you to get serious about God and about your relationship with Jesus. Now, whether I have or I haven't, may matter little or much to you. That's not the thing. But if, as a result of coming here and speaking, there's one young guy, there's one girl, who goes away by herself and says, you know what? That was for me tonight. I'm going to lay this down as a milestone in my Christian experience. I'm going to say that as of tonight, God helping me, I want to make sure by the power of the Spirit of God, that my lifestyle will match my life. It's going to change this, it's going to change that, it may revolutionize many things, but I am committed. I am unreservedly committed. Then it'll be time well spent. When I was 16, my mother was so concerned about me, she thought I was going to the dogs, and I probably was. My father was too. And she told me, she says, you know, there's a young man and he's coming to Yorkshire and he's going to speak in such and such a house and it's going to be a lovely time. Anytime she told me it was going to be a lovely time, that really concerned me. And, uh, you know, there'll be nice and there'll be some people there and wouldn't you like to come? And I said, no, I wouldn't like to come. And I'm not planning on coming. I can't go into all the details of it. Presumably as a result of, of prayer and a few other things, I eventually showed up at one of these meetings and I met a young man called John Shearer. I don't remember squat about what he said that night except one thing. He said that he was brought up in a place where there were large steel mills and his father worked in the steel mill. He said that in the steel mill they brought in a bunch of garbage, steel and bits of this and that. It was trash, uh, scrap. They poured the scrap in one end. They turned the fire up real hot. And out the far end came these bars of white, hot, purified steel. And they said, that was my life. Garbage in one end, white, hot steel out the other end by the power of Jesus Christ. And he said, okay, guys, are you prepared to put your lives in the smelting pot of the work of Jesus Christ to get rid of the dross, 
Get rid of the junk and become purified for His usefulness.